Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Neo Kobe Pizza, the only gaming podcast that floats in soup. My name is Mark B, and joining me today is returning guest, Zeke Nye the Science Guy. How are you doing today, sir? I am great. Thank you for having me on again. Well, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. But this time around is going to be a little bit different from the previous podcast in that originally we decided to talk about Mass Effect and we, you know, basically wanted to discuss what it gets right, what it gets wrong, etc., this was inspired more by you seeing a thing that I was playing and being very, very upset with just it as a concept. Yes, uh, I, I, the word that I like to use for this is I had a vehement reaction. Yeah, it was it was like an epiphany of suck. Pretty much. In a lot of respects. So, for those who are uninitiated, today we're going to be talking about the science behind Parasite Eve which is a game that is one part of a series of games inclusive of Parasite Eve 2 and the third birthday Yeah, that Square Enix has put out into the world over the course of the past decade or so. Now, the third birthday is bad for a whole other host of problems, but outside of anything else today, what we're going to be talking about is the science of Parasite Eve. The, the major reason being that, well, it's not great. Pretty much. And if you, if you have kind of been going through your life with the idea, having played this, that, that mitochondria does or does not do specific things, well, we're here to hopefully help correct that. Exactly. Also, I'm hoping Zeke's going to yell, so it'll be funny. <laughs> But all right, so let's pretend for a moment that you've completely missed out on Parasite Eve as a thing. Parasite Eve, the video game series, is based on a book, also known as Parasite Eve. The The book is a science fiction horror book of sorts that originally came out in Japan back in 1995, though for some reason didn't actually see an English publication until sometime around 2007, interestingly. The, the, the basic idea behind the book is that it takes mitochondria as a thing, and it presupposes that mitochondria as a organism forms the dispersed body of an intelligent conscious life form by the name of Eve. Eve has been kicking around in our mitochondria for centuries, millennia, whatever, going through history and evolution eventually hoping to get to the point where mitochondria can rebel against the human host and take over from humans basically becoming just just the best thing the ultimate life form the ultimate life form yeah it's the the book kind of makes the supposition that eve the entity that exists within mitochondria has found a brain dead host well, found a host and forced her to be brain dead, more appropriately, and kind of convinces the scientist to do a bunch of shit to uh, eventually make the host ideal for infestation. A bunch of shit happens. Uh, I'm not going to get into all of the book because I haven't read the book proper, but suffice it to say, Eve fails on a relatively small scale. The experiment as they design it doesn't work out the way that Eve expects it to, and the entity that they are attempting to breed dies. This is where the game comes in. 
the the game kind of works off of the idea that a separate event takes place where a different doctor does something to for all logistical intents and purposes create two children who are both hosts to Eve in one form or another. One, the the protagonist of the games, Miss Ayabrea, and another, whose name I honest to Christ cannot remember at this moment. Mayabrea. No, that's later games in the series. I'm not oh. I am not even getting into Maya Brea as a thing. That's just we made a clone of Ayabrea and it's younger than her, and this is how we're going to fuck the whole franchise up, pretty much. No, the, the character in question is a young woman who is performing Melissa something. Pierce. Pierce. Melissa Pierce. Thank you. She is performing on stage at Carnegie Hall the same night that Ayabrea is watching this performance, and Melissa basically sets everyone on fire with her mind. Aya attempts to stop her, and the two more or less start having mitochondrial evolution in line with one another, where Melissa turns into a gigantic shit demon, and Aya becomes basically an X-Man. Yeah, she gets psychic powers. She gets she gets psychokinetic powers, she can fucking throw brain fire, she can heal herself, it's, it's just a lot of crazy shit, just in general, as a concept. The, the whole game ultimately culminates with Melissa giving birth to, like, a dragon baby from the mitochondria somehow that Aya basically has to, like, blow up with fucking mitochondria bullets and also the explosion of a goddamn boat. And the game kind of, like, checks out, leaving us from the perspective that Aya is still this quote-unquote quasi-evolved perfect being, but for good, I guess? Like, she controls the mitochondria or something. They're never 100% clear on that. And the later games just kind of keep on with the idea of, like, mitochondrial evolutions and just... Okay. Oh, yeah. It, it even gets worse. Like, in the third game, the the mitochondria literally allows soul time travel. Yeah, I don't I don't even want to get into the third birthday. Like, like <laughs> the third birthday is just wrong on every functional level about everything it the third birthday is so bad it retroactively makes the first two games awful by association and sorry i'm never gonna forgive square enix for making that pile of shit it, it literally set like women's rights back like 20 years Oof. fucking ugh, terrible but no for the for the purposes of this exercise we will stick to the first two games and if necessary the book I'm not even getting into the third birthday because just nothing about the science in that game makes any kind of logical fucking sense in any way. Like, they've just given up. So let's let's start off with the obvious problem here. Mitochondria. Yes. Just as a thing. Now, when I was growing up, A Wrinkle in Time was kind of sort of still a thing that kids read when they were in school. And the, the second book in that series, A Wind in the Door addressed the, the concept of mitochondria enough that I knew that Parasite Eve wasn't 100% right about what they do and how they work, but, like, gi give, give us the basic idea here. What is mitochondria? What does it do? And just why is this wrong? Okay, mitochondria is the plural, by the way. Uh, the singular is technically a mitochondrion. In the same way that you have, like, bacteria, and then a singular one is a bacterium. Because it's stupid Latin stuff. Biologists love that. 
But the fundamental function of mitochondria in the cell is they're an organelle, uh, which literally just means tiny organ because it's one of the tiny organs of the cell. And uh, mitochondria take in fuel sources, usually sugar, but they can also work with proteins and fats. Can I can I step in here for a moment and just note that basically what you're saying is that if you want to be really insulting, you could go up to Jack Keish's and you could say, so you have an organelle. Potentially. I mean, he would get it, but like this is this is more of a tip for those of you out there who 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 want to tell somebody that they have a tiny dick is is the key point of this dissertation. It would be a very um, biologically scientific insult. Look, I'm not cultivating people who, who want to go for traditional insults. That's fair. We want to we take it to the next level. The function of the mitochondrion within the cell, and most cells that have mitochondria have lots of them, not just a single one, but it takes in fuel uh, and oxygen, and in the tiny folds and wrinkles on the mitochondrion surface, it performs the citric acid cycle, uh, also known as the Krebs cycle, to get ATP, which is a form of useful energy in the body. Now, I think, I, th I, I believe vaguely that Parasite Eve kind of talks about the idea of ATP. It may not be in the first game. I think it might be in the second game, but... Okay, so, so basically, why do we need mitochondria? Like, what, what is the purpose of them? What do, we, what do we do with them as a thing? The, the most important thing they do, like I said, is that ATP thing. All cells, and I do mean anything out there that qualifies as a cell, even things that don't have mitochondria can do a form of fuel processing called, I believe it's cytokinesis, something like that. Point is, it can take sugars uh, and other sources of energy, fats, proteins, and break them down into smaller things and with enzymes, and this produces a little bit of ATP, usually two or three molecules. That's not enough if you want to run a large multicellular organism. It just won't do the job. You can't get enough energy to run all of the processes you need. So we use mitochondria. We absolutely have to have them. If we don't have them, we die. Because mitochondria doing that citric acid cycle can produce 20 to 30 ATP, depending on, sometimes more, it depends on specifically what it's processing. But it produces like 10 times as much energy which is what we need to do our everyday activities. Without that, like I said, you die. There are actual diseases where if your all of your mitochondria are screwed up too much, they literally can't produce the energy you need and you will just stop working. So basically what you're saying here is that mitochondria essentially breaks down other stuff, like basically like the food that we intake in some capacity yeah. or another or whatever it's converted into within the body, breaks it down and generates the energy that we need in order to be able to function. Now, I, I, I do find it interesting that there are actually like diseases that can attack and kill the mitochondria. It's usually not so much killing the mitochondria per se, though that can happen. More what I mean is if, say, you inherited mitochondria from your, mo your mother, and the mitochondria in that very first cell, the egg cell from your mom, are broken. Like, they, they, they don't have all of the genes that they need to do their jobs, then that broken mitochondrion 
becomes the ancestor of all of the mitochondria in your body. And without having fully functional mitochondria, you can't do the things you need to do. Your cells just die. And therefore, like, it's possible to have diseases where it's not that the mitochondria are being attacked so much as they just aren't doing their job, and thus the cell dies. So, like, this is generally not a thing that you can get particularly far in life having an issue with. No, it's, I mean, I, I don't want to say that it's impossible, but you'd need to be rewriting the, or modifying the DNA in lots of mitochondria all over your body at once, and anything that can do that, like radiation, is almost certainly going to cause you much more serious issues in other places that will be much more directly fatal. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't sound particularly pleasant at all. No. So... Are mitochondria independent organisms within the cell? That is a very good question, actually. So, they are not. It is not possible for mitochondria to live on their own. However, it is known that mitochondria, unlike most organelles in the cell, they have what's called a double-walled membrane. So, all cells have a membrane on the outside, it's made of stuff called phospholipids, that keeps stuff out unless the cell wants to let it in. And things like viruses, for example, have ways of breaching through this membrane to get to the inside. And uh, you have then inside the cell little pockets, vesicles is what they're called, that will hold stuff. So like if you have like some food, you know, some sugars or whatever that have just been delivered to the cell, they will be kept inside uh, a vesicle for use later that vesicle will have a one-walled membrane because basically a little pocket of the cell's external membrane gets pushed into the cell and then it pinches off from where it was pushed in at and makes a little bubble inside. The thing is, mitochondria don't have one membrane like they just had the outside of the cell pinched off. They have two membranes. And because they have both two membranes, and they have their own separate DNA. No other part of the cell has extra DNA. All of the other DNA in the cell is kept in the nucleus. So because they have both their own DNA and this extra membrane, it's believed that mitochondria were originally, billions of years ago, their own independent cells that had evolved the ability to perform this citric acid cycle that can much more efficiently process energy, and that at some point the ancestors of modern mitochondria got absorbed into the ancestors of modern eukaryotic cells, is the fancy name. It just means cells like what make up you and me and most other large life forms, plants and animals and all that sort of thing. And so they actually were believed to be, or they're believed to have been independent life forms at one time, they cannot live on their own now. They do not have the genes, they do not have the structures necessary to do anything except replicate themselves and process energy. They need a host, a host cell in order to survive. Now, for reference purposes, when we say at one time, it's generally assumed that this is like billions of years ago when yes. life was first kind of forming itself, not like in the Roman era or some shit. No, this is this predates all higher orders of life. The only things you would have had at the time would be single-celled organisms floating in the ocean. 
Now, also to to establish this, mitochondria are not unique in that they are, you know, not they're not the only thing living in your body that is not necessarily a part of you in some capacity or another. Oh, we yeah, all yeah, have many, many different just life forms inside of us, gut flora, things of that nature that are kicking around. So, absolutely, from a conceptual level, it seems as though mitochondria. Are, are kind of presented as being a thing to talk about such that multiple pieces of media have done so because of this idea that once upon a time they might have lived outside of us. Yeah. Now, mitochondria basically exists in most animals as we understand it. All, well, there, there is one species of eukaryotic cell. It's a single-celled organism. Uh, there's one species of eukaryote that is thought to have lost its mitochondria, but other than that one single-celled organism species, everything that isn't bacteria has mitochondria. Literally everything. Yeah, for general reference purposes, the, 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 for those who are interested in this thing, the, the, the one eukaryote that is found that has done this thing is a entity called the monocerocominoid, and we have found definite proof that it exists without one, in that they found one in the intestines of a chinchilla in 2016. Yep. Which, I don't even know what to say about that. Yeah. There's just so many questions I have. Why were you poking around in the intestines of a chinchilla? Was this specifically what you were looking for? But for for the sake of having this conversation not derail any more than it is, just so you know, this is a thing that exists. That's where they found it. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, all animal life that you encounter, many like protists, fungi, just about any form of life that you could point to without a microscope and say, like, that's a living thing, it has mitochondria. Incidentally, plants, in addition to mitochondria, also have things called chloroplasts, which are how they do the photosynthesis thing. Chloroplasts also have their own DNA and a double-walled membrane. So it's thought that that's how photosynthesis started, was some little tiny cell figured out how to do it, and other cells gobbled them up. So basically the general idea of this seems to be millions or billions of years ago, individual cells evolved to a level that they were able to perform specific functions and then kind of sort of found themselves being brought into other cellular groups, which in turn allowed them to eventually evolve to a level where they become plants or yeah. us or whatever. Exactly. So this is this is not necessarily a symbiosis sort of thing so much as it is just billions of years of evolution kind of bringing a cell into us that, that functions just kind of automatically, I guess. At this point, it is truly symbiosis at the cellular level. In the beginning, it might have been actually uh, parasitism. It's hard to say. Uh, usually, you don't see biologists speaking strictly of parasitism or symbiosis anymore. The common term for all sorts of two organisms that both work together in some capacity or another is commensal relationships. And you can have commensal relationships that are positive for the host, commensal relationships that are positive for the, I don't know what the other term is, symbiote, I guess, or ones that are positive for both. Like, it, it can vary. So, like, in lichen, for example, 
uh, lichen are often held up as like the creme de la creme of uh, symbiosis. But what's interesting is uh, a lichen is a combination of an algae, which is a type of plant, and a fungus. But the fungus doesn't need the algae in order to live. It can live on its own just fine. It's just that it can live in more places, and it has an easier time of things if it has that algae partner. But if things go wrong and you have the fungus like kind of in a bad way, it can eat the algae, and the algae die. So is that really the same, like, is that really the gold standard of symbiosis, or does this reflect you know, more a, a, a sort of uh, natural cultivation that the monster is, or monster, the uh, mushroom is sort of cultivating the plant? But the, the idea generally is that either you had endoparasitosis, which just means a parasite inside a thing rather than living on its surface or whatever, or the these other cells uh, that went on to become, you know, ants and people and lions and whatever, that those other cells had eaten these things, but it happened to eat it in a way that didn't actually break them down, and so they stuck around in the cell for a while, and those cells that ate this and then didn't break them down are the ones that lived and things that ate them and did break them down didn't live. And that's why you saw them keep these things instead of breaking them down. So, basically how we understand it from, from that qualified explanation is billions of years ago, a whole bunch of cells gathered around mitochondria. Other cells that ate and digested mitochondria eventually died off because they weren't getting to a point where they were able to appropriately generate enough energy for greater cellular activity, whereas those who chose to live with the mitochondria directly eventually were able to generate greater cellular activity such that they were able to evolve into us. Yes. Th th and also lions. more successful. Yeah. And, and everything else that has more than a handful of cells in it. Okay. So... I feel like that gives us a, a working idea of what mitochondria are and how they work. So let's address the obvious question. What are the odds, do you think, that there is some type of a consciousness living in all mitochondria waiting for the moment where it's going to eventually take all of us over? Odds? Uh, I would... I consider that dramatically less likely than the fact than the idea that we are currently being visited by aliens from other planets. So what you're basically saying is that it is less likely that there is a consciousness living in our bodies than it is that aliens are putting things in people's butts. Yes. I just I just want to be clear here. Yeah, that's yeah. And the likelihood of that is is fairly low. Yeah. All right. Now, I mean, I feel like that's probably, you know, completely shit on the narrative of Parasite Eve, but let us press on. Right. With, with this in mind, let us assume, hypothetically speaking, that a consciousness lives in all mitochondria. All of them share this one unified consciousness. It's a hive mind across the entire world somehow. Our mitochondria are, are Borg. 
going into Parasite Eve, what what is wrong? What do they do right? What do they do wrong? Just I'm absolutely certain that there are a lot of problems. <laughs> and and let's 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 start from the obvious point and just kind of take it and put it aside. We as video game players understand that matter does not come from nowhere. You don't yeah. go from no matter to matter. That that violates what is it the second law of thermodynamics i don't know if it's uh, specifically uh, made as one of the laws of thermodynamics um, but almost all physical phenomena are subject to what is called conservation laws and this is not simply because we're just saying like oh we've observed this is the case there is actually a theorem uh neuther's theorem i might be mispronouncing that, it, that the woman had a, a german she's german and so i don't know exactly how it's pronounced but uh, Neuther's theorem is in mathematical physics. This is not an observation about the world. This is a provable mathematical theorem that if a physical phenomenon is subject to a specific kind of equation, and that equation has particular characteristics that are highly desirable in a physical theory because it makes it easy to work with, then it has, absolutely has, to have a conservation law. Mathematically, it cannot not have that. And the thing is, if it's not subject to this particular kind of equation, then that means that instead it's subject to exponential decay, which means that it has to reduce to nothing eventually, or so, so close to nothing that it's no longer measurably different. So... For for all logistical intents and purposes, we can just kind of assume that this is one of those laws that we can that we can kind of sort of nod and go like it, it's going to take a lot to prove that matter can come from nowhere. Yeah, absolutely. Basically, like 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 this is this is like entropy as a concept. You can't like you can't stop entropy. There's no way to make matter from no matter. Things that are spinning things that are spinning in a particular direction will continue spinning in that direction until you make them stop, that sort of thing. In general, I, I wanted to note here, because this is actually something I was going to bring up myself if you didn't, I don't have a problem with that in and of itself, because I see that as being a genre convention. Sure. Like, you can't, you can't make Resident Evil, as an example, without the ability to make matter from no matter. Yeah. Like, Resident Evil is dumb, but it's dumb. Nobody, nobody's looking at Resident Evil and going, well, let's talk about the hard science in Resident Evil. No, it's, it's fucking zombies and, like, shit with no eyes that has giant murder tongues. It's, we, we jumped the shark on scientific plausibility a long-ass time ago. We understand right. that matter does not come from no matter, zombies are not a thing that's going to happen, etc., etc. It's, it's, it's fine to be dumb, so long as, you know... Don't make pretensions of being scientifically accurate and then show me something that quadruples in size the moment that it's affected by some me medical condition. Right. To be fair, this also isn't police knots, which was mostly reasonably well thought out in its science, but then eventually had to accomplish an ass pull to get over a particular hump. Where it's, that's disconcerting, but only if you know the kind of science that, you know, you know. Yeah. Parasite Eve... Even at the time that I played it, I knew was trying to pretend that it knew more about science than it actually did. So, just taking the idea of matter can come from no matter, assuming it's a thing that's going to happen, and just putting it off to the side, where do we start with what is just wrong here? Okay, 
So there are a handful of facts that are presented more or less accurately. I think that they make a great deal of them that isn't appropriate, but that doesn't make the underlying fact incorrect. One example is mitochondria mutate uh, at approximately 10 times the rate of nuclear DNA. And this is, this is a, an established scientific fact. I had been skeptical, uh, but when I went looking up for it, no, that actually is the truth. And the re there are several reasons for it. Um, one of them is that mitochondria are just sort of like present in the overall cell, whereas nuclear DNA, that, you know, that which is kept in the nucleus, is uh, isolated from the other DNA, uh, or sorry, the other DNA, the other molecules of the cell. It's kept separate from, like it never gets exposed to uh, food molecules. It just never interacts with them. It is kept very distinctly separate from other things and really only interacts with DNA-related enzymes. Also, nuclear DNA has a bunch of uh, elements to it that help to prevent errors, and where errors occur, help fix them. It has some enzymes that literally their job is to look for mistakes in the code and try to make them not be mistakes anymore. Obviously that doesn't always work, or you would never have evolution, but it, it, it's fairly effective. And then, in addition to that, you have, for all organisms, though it varies from species to species, you have a bunch of junk DNA. DNA that either doesn't code for anything at all, it's just gibberish, or DNA that can't code for things because it doesn't have the indicator at the front that says, start looking here, and then stop over there. Or rather, start looking here, and then a thing later on that says, okay, you can stop now but that could potentially code for proteins that are things that we just don't need. So like for humans, we don't need genes for, I don't know, like scales. We don't have those things. We, we don't need things that code for the proteins that make fish scales. But it's possible, highly unlikely, but possible that we still have bits and pieces of, okay, this is how you make, you know, th this is how you put these molecules together that will fractally produce a scale. We just we don't use that, it's junk. Uh, and that's good, it's very good that we have this junk DNA because you can't stop radiation from passing through the cell. You just can't, that's, that's gonna happen. But if you have a bunch of junk DNA, say 50% of all of the DNA in the nucleus is junk, well then that means that any time the nuclear DNA gets hit by radiation that causes a change, there's only a 50% chance that it hits anything that matters. So you're, you, you, that's another defense of the nuclear DNA. Mitochondrial DNA, which I had mentioned earlier, is like missing most of the other things you need to know in order to make a successful cell. It also doesn't have much junk in it. In fact, it has almost no junk at all. Mitochondrial DNA is almost purely DNA you need for doing mitochondrial things. That means that mutations happen a lot. And the problem with mutations is like we, we, we often hear that a that, that like something that can evolve really quickly is really good. That, that that's you know superior, that's a superior life form. Well, no, because mutations are almost always bad. Like they're almost always bad. Or because of the way DNA works, they just don't do anything. Because there are some DNA always codes for things in sets of three, uh, that's called a codon, and there are 
the codons are linked to amino acids. Amino acids get put together to make proteins, and proteins are how bodies do things. Uh, you also have um, uh, enzymes are a particular kind of protein that can operate on other proteins and on DNA and that sort of thing. Uh, and then enzymes can make things like hormones, which is how we get uh, testosterone and estrogen and a bunch of other things. Codons don't are not like a one-to-one -one kind of thing. It's not like TCG codes for just this specific thing and nothing else, and if you change it to uh, TCC, now that's a completely different... Well, no. Some of them code for the same thing. And sometimes even two related things won't actually change the structure of the protein enough for it to behave differently. So mutations can sometimes be neutral. They don't do anything. They just change what the order of the letters is in your uh, genetic code without actually making it make a different protein. And it's good that that happens, because a lot of the time, mutations are bad. They, they kill the cell, and if you have a mutation like that occurs in a sperm or ovum that then goes on to become a person, or a, an ant or whatever else, if that mutation is not helpful, then usually the organism dies. So mutating very quickly is usually a bad thing. You want to have a controlled rate of mutation, that it happens often enough that you can pick up useful things, but rarely enough that you don't have most organisms dying before they get a chance to live. So, like I said, they're absolutely right that it has that ten times faster rate of mutation. That's usually a bad thing and means that a lot of uh, mitochondria get recycled by the cell that they exist in and made into a new mitochondrion later. Okay. But let's suppose, hypothetically speaking, there was some type of unifying overmind within the mitochondria that could hypothetically get the mitochondria to a level where it mutates in the exact way that mitochondria Eve wants it to mutate. If we presuppose the existence of uh, something that's applying not simply natural selection, but artificial selection, uh, in the same way that like humans applied artificial selection to corn, to take it from being like what modern baby corn looks like, where you can eat the whole thing and you can you often have them pickled, to modern, you know, normal corn, quote unquote, that is you know a foot long and you just eat the the kernels off the cob then that's a whole nother ballgame. And it's very difficult to say exactly what would happen at that point, because we don't have the ability to simply write genetic code. And for something that did, for something that had direct control over its own DNA, and an awareness of exactly what each change would do, that could be huge. On the flip side, though, you need really powerful supercomputers in order to be able to predict simply how a protein will fold when you know what its uh, amino acids are already, where you've already sequenced the protein and you're just trying to figure out how it will, you know, squiggle up on itself to make its structure, and that squiggling up is how the protein does its stuff. Uh, for example, hemoglobin is one of the proteins in the human body. We use it for pushing oxygen around. It, it picks up oxygen from your lungs, takes it to your cells, and then you know, drops the oxygen off and picks up carbon dioxide, which it then takes to your lungs to release into the air. And learning 
how a protein where all you know is the primary structure, just, you know, here's an adenine and here's a cysteine and here's a whatever. If all you know is the primary structure, figuring out the higher level structure of it, how it folds up on itself, what directions things will go, is very difficult. It's a fantastically difficult process. We're actually working on using the very primitive quantum computing that we have right now to try to make that work faster because there are algorithms you can run on a quantum computer that you can't run on a regular computer that may be able to speed that process up. But it's still a fantastically difficult computing thing. Even if you had all of the mitochondria in every, every living thing on Earth, and even if all of them had the capacity of, say, a desktop computer, which I would find extremely difficult to believe, but okay, whatever, it would still take all of that just to figure out one protein. And if you're wanting to be rewriting the genetic code of everything on Earth to achieve very specific ends, that's a fantastically difficult computing question. I just... I Even granting the sentience, even granting the hive mind control, and even granting an inordinate amount of computing power per mitochondrion, I just don't see that being reasonable. It's it's just, it's pushing things much too far. So, that being the case, we, we then have to kind of answer the question, would it be feasible for our mitochondria to evolve to a level such that they can give us telekinesis, but... I, I, I kind of want to go in a different direction with it, because obviously, no, your, your mitochondria are not going to give you fucking telekinesis. Okay. I mean, if, if you want to talk about how your mitochondria are not going to give you telekinesis, you know, knock yourself out, but... Nah, because it, it's basically just no. It's just bullshit, right? So, I guess I guess the question that I have is, do they get anything right here in general? They, they did actually get a few things right. So, as we've discussed earlier, mitochondria are all about energy processing. And I chose that word very specifically, because they use the word energy generation, and that's a common way that many people speak about it, so I don't want to fault them for using that word. But we get, and this also sort of gets into the, you know, something from nothing kind of thing, but it talks about how mitochondria can generate these vast quantities of energy. Well, not really. But one thing that mitochondria are directly involved in is uh, thermoregulation. We use our mitochondria as one of several systems for maintaining uh, internal body temperature. And the reason that they can do this is during the course of the Krebs cycle, there are several points where you have a phosphate ion interacting with the surface of the mitochondria, such that it can then be bound to ADP, adenosine tri or sorry, diphosphate. It sticks one more phosphate on there to make it adenosine triphosphate. That adenosine triphosphate can have its phosphorus groups broken off, and when you use an enzyme to break that off, the energy that was put into it is then released. This is how we can uh, take food in and then move that food to elsewhere in the body or elsewhere in the cell and still have it be useful. So at, at what point does the game get into this as a conversation piece? 
Um, this is when you go to the, um, I believe it's the uh, Museum of Natural History, mm-hmm. uh, where they meet with Hans Klump. Ah, scary German guy, yes. Yeah. Uh, scary German guy uh, starts talking about, you know, how you know, oh, mitochondria are the superior life form, and, you know, th- we couldn't live without them. So, are you still such, are you still so stupid to think that we are the superior life form? But uh, and one of the things that he mentions, for example, is that if you were to send the mitochondria into overdrive, that you would be able to easily produce enough energy to cremate a human body. That's not the case. Like, that, that's simply flat out not the case, scientifically. We're already sort of allowing that you can, you know, have something bulk up a whole bunch, creating matter from nothing. But I, I do want to hold it to task for this because it claims that mitochondria can do this due to what they do. Mitochondria do release energy into the cell as heat sometimes, instead of making that ATP thing where they, you know, do the thing with the phosphate and all that. Instead, you can just have the mitochondria let the energy go, uh, which would almost certainly take the form of uh, photons, uh, so uh, light in the infrared spectrum so we couldn't see it, but which transmit heat, and probably um, a fast-moving electron, because... An electron is essentially the thing that carries the energy around when you're doing the the citric acid cycle. And the energy that would normally go into making that ATP molecule, instead, because the mitochondria has received some protein signal or whatever, it instead just lets that energy go into the cell itself, which warms up the uh, liquid inside the cell, um, and by having all of the cells in a particular organ or whatever, release this uh, energy in that way, you have the temperature go up a little bit. But the emphasis here needs to be on a little bit. One of the things with all organic bodies, but we'll just talk about humans because it's convenient, uh, one of the things with the human body is we're mostly made of water. Water is something like three-quarters of all of the mass in your body. And Water is a very, very useful, very strangely behaved molecule, and it's good that it behaves strangely, because by having that strange behavior, we can exploit it. Unlike a lot of other molecules, water can hold a lot of energy in it. And this has to do with just the fact that it's got such small components, and that they can do certain kinds of bonding that don't work for other larger molecules, or other molecules that are organized in a different way. Water has a massive heat capacity, and because it has this massive heat capacity, it take, you have to put tons of energy into it in order to make it melt, firstly, and then after it's melted in a liquid form, you need to put way, you know, far and away even more energy in it in order to make it boil. And this is really good. Like, this is extremely good, because what it means is we can keep energy inside our bodies in the water just by having that water be warm. And we can, by having this broad range of possible temperatures, you can do things with water that you can't do with other things. But on the flip side, that also means that if you wanted to heat up all of the water inside your body to boiling, you would need to put in a ton of energy, an absolutely crazy amount. We're talking about just hundreds of thousands of joules of energy in order to boil all of the water in your body. Okay, so so for, for general reference purposes, 
give me an idea of something jewels wise that can be understood as this is like we're talking hundreds of thousands would need to be used to get the body to burst into flame like can, can you give me an idea of something in terms of raw jewels output for comparison just so we understand how much power we're talking about here you have an idea of, of like how much energy a 100 watt light bulb can put out yeah okay one watt is putting out one joule of energy for every second so a thousand joules of energy would be equivalent to 10 100 watt light bulbs all going for one second if you wanted to put in a hundred thousand joules of energy you would need a thousand 100 watt light bulbs going for one second and put all of that energy into your body at once and and then we're talking for it would probably have to be for a longer than a second to cause the body to spontaneously combust and self-immolate. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you wanted to actually like set the body on fire like that to cremate a body, you would need to be putting in just like I said, an absolutely insane amount of energy. It's just it's just not possible from the things that we know mitochondria can do it's just not possible for them to put out that much energy. Uh, an another way of thinking about that would be, I mean, consider, say, uh, how much natural gas, for example, you need to boil a pot of water. And then now think that it takes like a hundred pots of water to make up a human body. And you're now heating up all of that at once, not simply, you know, taking 15 minutes to get to boiling. No, we're going from human body temperature, 98 degrees, to instant flash burning that they, they burn to cinders in seconds. No, there's just no way that that could happen. And, and, and even if it were conceivably possible for that to happen, it, it needs a fuel source that comes from somewhere in any case. Like, right, exactly. As we, as we established earlier mitochondria convert things in the body into energy yeah how fat would you have to be that your whole body would be able to set itself on fire like that because it just seems to me like if you if you weigh that like a standard bmi at six foot one the amount of energy that it would require like you would just turn into the crypt keeper you would just go gaunt before you would burn to death absolutely uh, and an another way of encapsulating that is they mention uh, in Dr. Clamp's discussion, he talks about how you need to heat the human body to uh, 1600 degrees. I don't actually think they use Fahrenheit, but uh, having looked it up, you need to heat a human body to between 1400 and 1800. So 1600 is a reasonable number uh, degrees Fahrenheit in order to cremate it. Right, like which is, it, it's also it's also worth noting here that there is a fundamental difference between burn tissue damage and literally setting a thing like flesh on fire. Yes. You can burn yourself pretty easily. Yeah. But like the body fats require a lot of fucking heat, a lot of raw heat to actually burn. Yes. And furthermore, when we cremate a body, when we're you know trying to turn it into ashes, we don't just raise its temperature to 1600 degrees. We keep it at 1600 degrees for between one and a half and three and a half hours. 
Right. Now, for the purposes of this exercise, the, the body isn't attempting to go all the way. The, no. the mitochondria are not attempting to destroy the clothing. They're not attempting to burn Though we bones. do see several bodies that the, the, the bones are not burned, but we see them with what appears to be their clothing having been burned completely off, and it's just a charred corpse. Yeah, but I mean, you know, polyester's flammable. It's... <laughs> but it's like supposing supposing we burn all of the tissue away yeah like y you would be at a point where the amount of energy that would have to be expended even even somebody like peter griffin size would be reduced to a husk at that point i i just i don't i, I don't know the precise energy content of human body fat so i wouldn't be able to comment on that but I cannot see it being a sufficient fuel source for this. You would also you would also have to retain that fuel for a period of time because like once you've set the body on fire, it's not going to burn down to the absolute bottom. I would assume like yeah. this isn't this isn't like lighting a wick in a candle. So it's the mitochondria has to survive for the entirety of the time that this process is going on. Oh yeah, yeah. There's that too. Is that like, if you were to be setting somebody on fire that way, their mitochondria are also going to be set on fire and you know burn. So, yeah, it's just it, there's there are many problems with this assertion. So we are talking about, and we're we're just going with like the first scene here, basically at this point. We are talking about an entity that generates matter from no matter which we've established we're going to let go of, but even so, is capable of self-generated flight, rewrites her Flotation bone and muscle even. structure, well, levitation or something. Well, later on, we see her actually, like, floating sufficiently high off of the ground such that, for, for all intents and purposes, it might as well be flight. Like, like as far away as she is, like, she, she has no reasonable force to, to press from the ground. Like if she's just like a couple of inches off of the ground, sure, that's flotation. I would I would agree. But okay. she's actually able to elevate herself like later on in the game to a point where she's like she she's basically keeping herself afloat with no I, I was more making a distinction between like uh flight using wings and flight in the sense you are of telekinetic yeah. Right. So she's she's telekinetically flying. Let's put that on the yeah. table. She doesn't have she doesn't grow wings that I can recall, and even if she does, they're mostly for decoration. Yeah. She is telekinetically keeping herself aloft. Yep. She's able to make a laser out of her boobs, which just <laughs> is somehow the least offensive thing out of all of this. And she sets multiple people on fire, like, within seconds with her mind. Like, we just see people looking at their hand, and their hand is just bursting into flames, and then, oh shit, so is everything else. And this this effect extends for hundreds of yards around her because she is at the center of Central Park at some kind of concert thing, and your detective partner cannot enter the park because when he tries, he starts catching on fire. Yeah, and that that was weird too. Like, this seems to be a thing where the mitochondria instantly start lighting him on fire. Like, I don't feel like that would be a thing where taking your arm out of it would make that stop. Like, it, it's one thing if you put your hand in and, like, you know, the, the like, your clothes burst into flame. But, like, his hand is literally setting on fire. That's, like, I, I feel like that's a thing that would disfigure you for life. 
and would be incredibly difficult to, you know, deal with. Yeah, it, it's it, it. The game does not even play by its own rules, and that's sort of a, a a difficult thing to forgive. Okay, so about about the orange sludge monster. Yes. The second day in Central Park, and then for several days afterward, Eve turns a concert of people into just orange shit. Just basically makes them into primordial soup. Like, their skeletons aren't left behind. I think maybe their clothes were. They don't really get into that. It's just, it, it, uh, let's, let's, let's just start out with the obvious question. Um, is there mitochondria in your bones? No. Uh, well, it depends on what you mean by in your bones. Uh, there will be mitochondria present in the marrow, because your bone marrow is alive and produces many of the cells that go into your blood both leukocytes, white blood cells, and uh, red blood cells as well. So there are mitochondria present in the marrow, but in like the, the structural parts of your bones that, you know, are the things that your muscles attach to, no, there's no mitochondria in that because there's no cells in that. Assuming that the mitochondria could in some way so strongly overpower the flesh tissue and turn it into, you know, dude soup, what kind of effort do you think would be involved in turning bones into also dude soup? Um, it would have to be some kind of chemical... Uh, you Basically what you're doing is dissolving the bones. Mm -hmm. And that's theoretically possible. It would probably mean that you would need something like a, a very strong acid... So the mitochondria would need to be able to somehow produce really strong concentrated acid. Uh, if it is a thing that is both sentient and has control over its internal body chemistry, which is kind of what you need for be able to rewrite your own DNA, you probably could have it so that... To give an example of something that's vaguely related to this, our nerves, you know, all neurons... Uh, operate by being able to control the ion concentration that's inside and outside the cell. As you probably would you know, reasonably expect, in the absence of intentional control by the cell, you're going to end up having more or less equal concentrations of things inside and outside the cell. Because th where you have less of something, it's going to flow toward that area. And where you have more of something, it's going to slowly drift away from that area, just because it's drifting around. But our cells have the ability to uh, do ion pumping, so they, um, uh, as an example, they push sodium ions out and pull c uh, uh, calcium ions in. Uh, calcium ions have a, a positive 2 charge, whereas sodium ions have a positive 1 charge. So by pushing the sodium ion out and bringing the calcium ion in, they end up with a net charge difference inside the cell versus outside the cell. Then when the cell essentially opens the floodgates so that the ions can exchange again, that allows a chemical, an electrochemical current to flow from one cell to the next and then you continue to build up these potentials, is what they're called. Build up a potential in a cell, and then it gets released to go on to the next cell. And this happens very, very quickly. 
because otherwise your nerves would respond in you know seconds or minutes instead of so close to instantly that at least for us humans we can very rarely d detect the difference between it being instant and not it actually does take like a thousandth of a second or something but it, like the amount of time is negligible compared to the actions we need to take so it doesn't matter if you had something vaguely similar with these mitochondria you know these hypothetical super intelligent uh, mitochondria you could potentially have something where like they're able to send the acid to just where it needs to be and hyper concentrate it right on the surface of the bone so that it can etch it away maybe i could see that like uh, that that it, that ironically actually has some potential uh reason to it uh i i guess you could say maybe they're like pumping the stomach acid from all of these people's stomachs to go etch away at the bones but the speed at which it happens is a little weird. So, all right. I mean, I have a lot of questions just in general, but, you know, this is already going to be like an hour and a half long as it is. So I'm basically taking away from that, yes, but it would be a gigantic fucking pain in the ass and it wouldn't be worth it. You would have been better off just leaving the goddamn bones there. Yes, precisely. Okay. Unless you had some really specific, like, purpose or use for the stuff that the bones themselves are made of. It's calcium appetite, pretty much. If you had some reason to, to want all of that calcium, maybe. But honestly, you could get it from other sources that would be much more easy to digest, so I wouldn't bother. So, there's two things that kind of come up in Parasite Eve after the orange schmush monster, that I feel like are the most interesting parts of this conversation we're going to get into. One of them because I know it's correct, but I don't know if it's correct the way that they use it. And the other because it attempts to address the, the way in which the book ultimately ended in one of the weirdest ways I can possibly imagine. Okay. Let's start with the the thing that is is correct but i don't know if the way that they use it is correct they have a conversation in the game where both aya and eve are kind of evolving evolutionarily speaking along the same general tract mitochondria wise but in different ways where eve's mitochondria has directly taken her over and forced her into becoming eve proper whereas aya is still in control as the host body and is more or less directing her mitochondria. And they, they make the argument that the two of them are kind of in conflict with one another based on selfish gene theory. All right. Now, selfish gene theory is the thing. Like, this this legitimately yes. does exist. It's, it's a book on evolution by Richard Dawkins that was written back in the 70s, where he, he talks about the idea of gene-centered views of evolution as opposed to organism and group-focused ideas. Yes. Which is all fine, but I don't... I don't 100% know how you would apply selfish gene theory to two different people whose mitochondria are evolving in different directions. You don't. Uh, and th this is another issue that crops up in a great many things, is that the... What evolution is, uh, what it means, and uh, what we should think about it are 
very poorly understood in the just general the science enthusiast community as opposed to the scientific community what the gene-centered or uh, selfish gene view of evolution says is that genes are not should not strictly be viewed as uh, things that provide utility to the organism that that is a overly restrictive view of what genes do and how they stick around the idea with the quote-unquote selfish gene theory is that what evolution does is it decide or it's the i shouldn't say decides because that again is projecting some kind of thinking process or understanding on this that there is no thinking there is no understanding it's just how things change with time but i i think that anybody can generally understand the idea that if something can make copies of itself and is effective at sticking around long enough to make copies of itself that it will make copies of itself. That's that's pretty uncontroversial, I should think. And the idea with selfish gene theory is it's saying, look, when we talk about genes, all that, it, that really matters in the long run is, does this gene continue to exist into the future? Because genes that live in organisms that die without ever making new organisms will never be seen again. Those genes die with the host um, and they just they're not being copied, so they're not being used again by new things and we'll never see them. A selfish gene, quote unquote, is one that increases its likelihood of getting used again by future organisms at the cost of things to the organism that actually has that gene currently. So a, a relatively simple example of a selfish gene. If we look at peacocks, peacocks are widely known for being uh, flamboyant, for, for having this you know dramatic and uh, highly visible plumage. Peafowl, on the other hand, uh, the female members of the, uh, sorry, the uh, peahens, the female members of the peafowl species, are drab. They're all, you know, brown and tan, and, and they, they don't have anywhere near the uh, incredibly vibrant and beautiful colors of the uh, peacock. Having those vibrant and beautiful colors makes it a lot harder to, you know, blend in with the ground, which is what peafowl live on. They don't live up in trees, they don't live, like, you know, jumping from tree to tree or whatever, they mostly walk around on the ground. And it is dangerous to not have camouflage. The reason most things have colors that look like the environment they live in, you know, how fish have, like, shiny bottom sides and blue top sides, is because when you look at a fish while you're underwater, if it has a shiny silver side, it's going to look like you're looking up at the sky. And if it has a blue top side, then when you're looking down into the water, you're going to see blue, which is what you would normally see looking in that direction. So, like, like that helps those fish not die, and thus the genes inside them keep on being reproduced. But with the peacock, it sacrifices that increased camouflage in order to have a higher chance of mating. 
So you have something that makes it more likely that the peacock will die, but also more likely that the peacock will make kids. That's the fundamental idea of a selfish gene, something that actually does reduce the long-term survival of a creature, but increases the likelihood that its genes will survive. That's where that selfishness comes in. It's that the survival is at the gene level, not at the organism level. The genes themselves don't think anything. They're literally just chemicals. Well, I mean, in, in, a, in a broad sense, I can sort of see how you would use selfish gene theory when talking about Eve as an entity, because in theory, if the mitochondria themselves are attempting to survive in their evolved form, Eve as an entity, it is made known, is pretty clearly going to fucking die at the end of the multiple day period. We, like, we, we established this as part of the narrative. Eve's evolution in total makes sense from a selfish gene theory perspective. The, the competition between Aya and Eve is bizarre and weird as a selfish gene theory concept, but I can sort of see... Because if, if Eve is going to die, like, we, we establish that Eve is going to die by the end of the time period, but, like, she wants to breed in some capacity or another. So they her body evolves in a way to where her mitochondria is capable of doing whatever stuff. You, you can't apply the ideas of evolution to individual organisms. Individual organisms do not evolve. That's that that like that's just that's how it is. Uh, part of this is uh, unfortunately that we have never had an organism, and almost certainly never will have an organism that can actively edit its own DNA. That's not a thing that has ever existed, as far as we're aware. And so you you can't talk about evolution occurring at the individual organism level. Uh, evolution occurs as a species, you are subjected to mutations, some of which are neutral, which means that they don't do anything different, you still operate the same way, you're just, your DNA is slightly different, some of which are selective, that is, that they have, they can, they change the pressures on a particular organism. And these changes to that DNA only accrue over a long, long period of time. You have to have many, many, many cycles of uh, creating offspring. That offspring grows up, has kids, dies off, and those kids grow up and have kids and die off, etc., etc. It's only by having the, this succession of generations, this you know, something that applies pressure. In the absence of selective pressure, which can be artificial selection, like when humans selected you know, bigger corn ears, um, it can be neutral pressure, which means that it doesn't actually, it, it's not, you, you are not being forced to survive or not survive, and so you just sort of sit in neutral. It can be a negative pressure, which means that something bad is happening and that you need to adapt to that. It can be positive pressure, which means that there's like lots of good things around, and so then things which take the best advantage of the opportunities available are the ones that are that the pressure favors. And that's why, like, for example, after a mass extinction, you have a explosion of new life forms, because there's very little competition. Minimal competition is a form of positive selection. And I'm probably using these terms very informally, 
Uh, I wouldn't expect to see them in a biology textbook used this way, but bear with me on that. You can't have selfish gene theory applying to an individual organism because in the way that the theory is structured is expecting that you have the constant changeover of one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. Not simply, you know, going to grandparents or great-grandparents, but we're talking over thousands, millions of generations. And if you don't have that changeover of thousands or millions or billions of generations, you don't have uh, enough time for the statistical mechanics to be able to describe something. Almost all biology, and indeed almost all sciences in generally physics, chemistry, whatever, uses statistical mechanics in order to talk about things, and when you're only looking at an organism making a change, that's you can't do statistics on that. It, it's literally not possible. The way that we do statistics requires that we do a slight renormalization, which would mean that if you were trying to use just one thing, you would get a divide by zero error, which destroys any ability to do any math at all. So, like, like the, the problem is that we're applying this selfish gene theory in a thing that just can't handle it. It just it doesn't mean anything. Uh, it, it doesn't apply. And so, like, while we can speak of it in terms of an organism where it is focused on the survival of its genes over itself, that's not really selfish gene theory. That's, in a certain sense... Uh, you could almost call it, I, I guess, species altruism. That uh, Eve is behaving as she does, not because she's trying to promote her own survival, but rather that she's trying to promote the survival of the kind of organism that she is. Right, like the clo I, I think the, the, the major point that they try to make here is they do the sequence where Meta takes like a blood sample of Aya's and dumps it into a slide against Eve's blood. And you see how Eve's blood directly reacts, or her, her mitochondria directly reacts, just subsuming the other mitochondria for all intents and purposes. Which is weird, because she's also able to directly influence other mitochondria around her, so I'm not... Like, there's a lot of questions about how the actual mitochondrial evolution and activity works, that she's able to control other people's mitochondria... But then when they come into blood contact with one another, she directly subsumes it, but whatever. The, the, the bigger thing is, is that they introduce Aya's blood into Eve's blood, and the, the Aya's mitochondria respond with, like, electron fields, for all intents and purposes. Like, like they show this CGI sequence where, like, little, little parasite-type deals latch onto the mitochondria... And then, like, Aya's mitochondria just generates, generates this electronic field and shakes them all off. And, yeah, it's, it's, I could sort of understand that Aya's genes could be doing this, but it's just, the fact that Eve is an actual existent personality, she, she is considered to be the personality of the mitochondria, just, just makes it feel like, like, the mitochondria should, on a fundamental level, be smarter than that. It's just it's just very weird that we're, we're talking about the idea of selfish gene theory as a sort of form of genetic evolution conversation, but also Eve's mitochondria are 
sentient and convalesce into this Eve persona. It, it's okay. All right. The the other thing. Okay, in the original book, Parasite Eve, and I don't I don't know if you read anything about this. Uh, very little. Okay. Both the book and the game kind of need to deal with the idea of how to defeat Eve. In the book, Eve eventually does something where she wants to breed, for all intents and purposes. She takes over a brain-dead woman and essentially just becomes her personality, for all intents and purposes. And then kind of sets it up so that she can infest a body and breed using mitochondrial life. So what they do is they, I mean, they could just do it in a regular way because it's a Japanese horror movie. The the Eve body, like the Eve person, this woman, Kiyomi, rapes a dude to get his sperm to fertilize her egg. And they they kind of use this in the same way that Eve does this in the game. In the book, the the reason why the experiment fails is because the donor carries a separate line of male mitochondria, because there's apparently both male and female mitochondria that are inherited from the egg and the sperm. I'm going to finish explaining this, and then I will just let you get into that conversation. <laughs> And then we'll we'll move on to what they do in the in the game. In the book, the 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 male, his mitochondria that are inherited through the sperm resist the attempt by the the egg's mitochondria to subsume and take over, fight for control of the child's body, and cause it to switch between male and female forms, apparently, which thus kills the child and also the guy. Because he merges with the child to control its psychokinetic power that might kill people. <sighs> Which I don't even I don't even know, man, but alright, so male and female mitochondria. What? Yeah, uh so something I had mentioned earlier was that uh, there are a variety of organelles in the cell. You don't just have mitochondria, you have a bunch of other things too. You don't get those from your dad. Ever. The the Paternal contribution to inheritance never includes any of the organelles of the cell. A, a sperm is literally just like two things. Uh, I guess you could call it three things. You've got a little bit of sugar because it needs energy to be able to move around. You have, and I guess ATP and that sort of thing. You have a flagellum, which is the little whip tail that's on the end of a sperm. Lots of different things have flagella. It's not just sperm. Many bacteria, for example, have a flagellum. You have the flagellum, and then you have in the head of the sperm, um, it's half of uh, a person's DNA. It has a set of half the chromosomes that a human needs. And actually, interestingly, the reason why in a statistically normal sample of human beings, you have very, very, very slightly more men than women is because a Y chromosome is very slightly smaller than an X chromosome, and so a Y chromosome sperm is very slightly lighter 
but has the same flagellum in the back pushing it along, so there's a tiny, tiny chance that a male sperm will be just a little bit faster and get to the egg first. But the sperm doesn't contain any mitochondria at all. Nothing. Zero. All of your mitochondria are inherited from your mother. This is, in fact, where we get the idea of mitochondrial Eve. Uh, mitochondrial Eve is the woman, and we don't know what specific woman this was. Uh, we figure out when she might have lived using a combination of statistical modeling techniques and our understanding of how quickly uh, mitochondria mutate. We can look back and, and try to figure out roughly when the woman lived who is the modern, who's the ancestor of her mitochondria went on to become all of the mitochondria that currently live in human beings. Yeah, I was, I was kind of wondering when we were going to get to the actual factual basis of the concept of mitochondria Eve. Yeah, and, and this, I don't remember exactly how long ago she lived. It was uh, hundreds of thousands of years at the very least. But uh, the reason that we can do this is because like as I said, since men cannot pass their mitochondria on, that's just not possible. Anytime a male child is born, that's a dead end for those mitochondria. Those mitochondria will never live in another human being again. Anytime a woman has a female child, that female child inherits her mitochondria. Well, all of her children will inherit her mitochondria, but her female children can pass them along to future generations. So if you have a woman who only has male children, her mitochondria end. They will never live in anyone else. And conversely, if you have a woman who only has female children, then she has a slightly higher likelihood of her mitochondria going on to live in more people. Um, you can actually do it the same thing with Y chromosomes, because women don't have Y chromosomes, so that you know that's sort of a dead end there men have to inherit the one Y chromosome that their dad has. So you can do the same sort of process of statistical modeling with Y chromosome distributions to look at who the uh, most recent common ancestor of all human Y chromosomes is. And that would be Y chromosome Adam. He lived at a completely different time than, y than uh, mitochondrial Eve because the mutation rates and inheritance cycles are different for uh, mitochondria versus Y chromosomes, because they're a chromosome versus an organelle, but these were like actual human beings. If we had a time machine, we could theoretically go back and try to figure out exactly who the man and the woman were whose uh, Y chromosomes and mitochondria respectively have become the mitochondria and Y chromosomes that exist in all modern humans versus all modern men, respectively, today. But mitochondrial Eve, despite having been a person, really didn't have any specific impact on those mitochondria except for the fact that they lived in her cells. That's really it. So the concept, the concept of mitochondria Eve is a thing that is appropriate, for, for lack of a better way of attempting to describe it, but the the way in which the game chooses to utilize it is false I mean, right it's bullshit in in the interest of getting to the other part of how the game attempts to address this let's let's just go from there um so how they explain it in the game and i think i think you came in at the tail end so you missed this part dr klomp is aware 
of the original experiment, and he genetically engineered special sperm for Eve to ultimately create the, the ultimate being that I believe the way in which they chose to explain it was that the sperm had no mitochondria. Right, which is bullshit. It doesn't have male mitochondria. There are no male mitochondria. There are only, you, you only get mitochondria from your mom, and if you're a dude, you're a mitochondrial dead end. You, you can't give people your mitochondria with your sperm. It doesn't work that way. This whole entire argument about like male versus female mitochondria is just like it this is not a thing that would have happened in general but it's but let's total bullshit <laughs> is there mitochondria in sperm there's there's no. a question no there is no mitochondria in sperm like at all like it doesn't even need it to survive to any capacity sperm are not intended to survive sperm are kamikaze pilots that is the most interesting and also correct way i've ever heard somebody describe the function of a sperm so all right Basically, they just exist to fire and forget. They, they, they literally don't have mitochondria to begin with. Okay, so we did a scientific experiment to remove mitochondria from a thing where mitochondria doesn't exist. Yes. Do you, do you think we would have known that mitochondria don't exist in sperm in 1995? Yes, yes, we, yes. we knew that. Absolutely. We knew that. Yes. Okay. We, we've known that pretty much since we had the ability to look at cells with microscopes i guess it makes i guess it makes sense that one of the first thing people would do once they had the ability to look at stuff in microscopes is look at sperm and figure out what's going on with that shit just in general because sperm is weird <laughs> i mean it looks like it looks like miniature tadpoles it's weird i can't be the only person that thinks this but all right so so they make sperm without mitochondria because apparently in the world of parasite eve your sperm is mitochondria i guess whatever Eve shoots herself up with this. Oh, pardon me. I actually just did a little bit of research while we were talking. Apparently, I was incorrect, specifically in the part of the tail of the sperm that connects it to the head, there actually are a tiny number of mitochondria. But the thing is, egg cells take no chances. They exterminate the male mitochondria. No sperm mitochondria make it to the final cell, ever. But, having learned this now, perhaps he was trying to be 110% sure. I'm kind of surprised. So, by and large, the odds are good that you wouldn't need to do that, because in general, usually, the mitochondria is going to get murdered. Like, the male mitochondria is going to get murdered. Yeah, the mitochondria in the sperm get destroyed. Like, they get specifically targeted by chemical things. This is something that we only learned relatively recently, as in 2012. Wait, which part did we only learn recently? That they get targeted and destroyed. Okay, so we, I guess, knew that they were, that they existed as a thing. So, all right, so it's possible that he might have believed then that the male mitochondria would have attempted to rebel in some capacity or another, I guess. Even though you have, like, apparently over a thousand uh, mitochondria from the egg for every single mitochondria in, in the sperm. So, a rebellion would be quashed very quickly. Fair. Okay. Fundamentally, 
the, the just the idea of preparing special sperm in general is already pretty suspect, but beyond that, the idea that there is any male inheritance, and especially that that male inheritance is substantial enough to be dangerous to the female mitochondrial inheritance? No. Sorry. Nope. There are many, many, many studies that have been done on how mitochondrial inheritance works. That's why we have this concept of mitochondrial Eve, and that just those studies would be absolutely ruined if there was any chance of uh, the of men contributing mitochondria to their children. It just doesn't happen. I see. All right. So we have pretty thoroughly shit on the idea of this happening. Do you yep. do you have anything else you would like to address here? Because I got to be honest, I'm kind of curious on your take of mitochondria bullets. Um, that's a little complicated. Um, on the one hand, it's kind of dumb because in order for a bullet to fire it has to be essentially subject to an explosion that's how cannons work and and pretty much all projectile weapons we use right now Uh, i say right now technically speaking um, the navy has uh, railguns which are projectile weapons that use electromagnetic stuff to work but for the most part when we shoot something at something we are putting it in a tube that is closed with an explosive at one end. We activate that explosive, it goes boom, and because it's this you know, bullet is in a closed tube, the bullet, cannonball, whatever, it gets pushed out the other end really fast. That That's how bullets do. And I just don't really think that it's reasonable to have some kind of organic tissue survive being subject to not only that explosion, which is going to generate tons of heat and thus probably destroy the mitochondria, but on top of that, they're going to fly through the air um, at very high velocity, which is going to generate tons of friction and other things, probably, yeah, certainly deforming the bullet, but probably uh, shearing off anything that's on its surface. It's just, I mean, in theory, it's possible. You could potentially have it uh, be something like if it were an anti-personnel bullet, the kind of bullet that mushrooms when it hits the target, is to do the most damage inside. If it had inside of that, like inside the metal coating, a vial of stuff, maybe? Like, like I could potentially see that being a, a means of delivering an organic thing to a target. It would be highly ineffective. You would... There are almost certainly better ways of doing that. There's a reason that we shoot tranquilizers in darts that are essentially tiny hypodermic needles rather than shooting things with tranquilizer bullets. Yeah, I don't even I don't even begin to know how that would work because like they quite clearly make it that it's bullets. They have her partner Daniel throw himself out of a helicopter into the ocean, which fuck you just in general. Right. Like he threw himself out of a goddamn helicopter. Like the the, the impact with the ocean broke his everything, but whatever. And he throws her the the bullet clip. Also, as as an so it's like it's clearly a clip of bullets. But also, now that we've established that point, if you're self-immolating because your your mitochondria are setting themselves on fire and you fall into the ocean, is that gonna stop you 
from self-immolating? Like, is being around water going to prevent that from happening? It, it, given that it's already lighting you on fire despite you being made mostly of water, no, it's not. So, he's basically dead, regardless. Yes, he should be dead. Not just from the impact, but because you're going to keep burning underwater. Yeah. Well, well, uh, maybe a better way of putting it is, you might not be burning anymore, because the water will prevent fire, outright fire. You'll be boiling to death. Yeah, you, you will be roasting inside. Okay. The only other thing that I wanted to say about uh, this, and it's not even strictly about the science, just an interesting thing to note about the game itself. Um, apparently, um, the Parasite Eve franchise, I guess you could now call it, but at the very least the first game, was heavily influenced by... Uh, the Final Fantasy series. Uh, it yes. obviously takes some significant uh, stuff narratively and structurally from uh, Resident Evil because, I mean, you you can look at the mitochondria monsters and look at the T-virus and all these other virus things. Uh, there's so there's some pretty clear resemblance between those things. The thing that Shiva turns into is looks straight out of a Resident Evil game. Uh, but uh, it's very interesting because Parasite Eve uh, actually takes not simply the engine, it uses the same engine as uh, Final Fantasy VII, but it actually takes a number of uh, design notes uh, from Final Fantasy VII because apparently the original intent with Final Fantasy VII was to set it in New York City. Uh, and they had like some art assets and a few other things that had been drafted up, because that's where Parasite Eve is set, is New York City. And so it's just, it's very interesting to me that uh, you have a number of components of this game coming in, not strictly from the survival horror, which would be expected given the narrative and other things of the game, but you also almost certainly have the influence of uh, the Final Fantasy series, and specifically Seven. Uh, and you can sort of kind of see some ideas in this, um, in that you can draw some similarities between... Um, what's the thing that's, that Sephiroth is all on about? Uh, Genova? Yes, Genova you, cells, you, very good. Yeah, you, you can see some kind of sort of similarities there, uh, even though the novel predates Final Fantasy VII. Uh, there's, it seems pretty clear there's a little bit of cross-pollination going on there. And you know, ideas of the life stream are kind of sort of similar to this, you know, gestalt consciousness of the mitochondria and um, just uh, other ideas uh, about uh, organisms and uh, large scale or, or Gaia type organisms and how they defend themselves and that sort of thing. So it's just it's very interesting to me that uh, a game that makes zero pretensions whatsoever of being scientific had such a heavy influence on one that makes many, many pretensions of being scientifically accurate in some sense or another. Yeah. I I just don't even know where to go at that point, honestly. Like, I love Parasite Eve as a game, but there's just a lot of dumb in there, I think. Oh, yeah. It, I... I I didn't get to see um, as much of the gameplay as I think I would have liked, uh, but it looked interesting, and I, I, I respect the idea that, as an example, it actually gives you more 
points to work with if you have played the game well. That is, if you avoided taking hits and uh, dealt more damage or whatever, then you actually get more stuff to work with. That's pretty cool. But as a sort of... The gameplay is unfortunately supported by a narrative that requires scientifically inaccurate understandings of scientific things. In general, did you have anything else that you wanted to say about the game and what it does or does not do? I, I feel like I feel like we're kind of at the point now where, you know, it's just it's just picking on the game. <laughs> yes, we we have we have beaten the horse quite soundly, and anything further, and we're just doing this for our own enjoyment rather than to actually cover something new. So, no, I'd say that we've uh, we've pretty much covered everything, and um, the only. I think the only other thing that leaves me just sort of, like, raising an eyebrow is, like, what? So this ultimate life form thing that uh, Mitochondrial Eve is trying to um, protect from Aya and, and trying to raise so that it can, you know, take over the world or whatever, um, we see it... Um, I believe she starts gestating it on uh, Liberty Island. Uh, Aya moves in and tries to deal with all of this bullshit. Um, Aya successfully kills Mitochondrial Eve, but not until uh, the ultimate life form is actually born. And it then like falls off of Liberty Island or whatever and climbs up onto the ship, and there's a, this whole massive uh, boss battle where you receive those mitochondria bullets to kill it with. Um, and it strikes me as a little humorous, I guess. We spend all of this game talking about how, you know, mitochondria are the superior life form and all this other thing, and yet it's not only built from people, but on top of that, in pretty much all of the forms that it takes after that point, you can see a very clear humanoid shape going on in there. Yeah, it'll have, you know, the weird dragon wing things, and it's got the long floppy hands and, and all sorts of other stuff, but it has a clearly humanoid head, and, like, even, like, in, in its weird lumpiness, like, the, the suggestion of ears and that sort of thing. So it's like, are you really the ultimate life form that's going to replace humanity, or are you just humans with weird lumps? I find it, it, it seems a little bit, I don't know, um, self-serving, that we say, you know, oh, you know, humanity's totally not the superior life form, but the thing that is a superior life form, yeah, it totally looks just like us. Yeah, but only in the beginning, and then by the end it turned into, like, this weird green fish thing. Fair enough. Like, at the very end when you're fighting it, it's like, I mean, it's, it's got a humanoid body, but then it, like, turns into this fish monster. Also, I found that kind of weird that Aya was able to successfully fight off this monster to whatever extent until the very end where it's chasing you through the boat, and then if you touch the monster once, like, she just literally dies. Interesting. Which is not, which is not necessarily a, a, a bitching about the science so much as it is just gameplay and story segregation. Yes. But I do want to say, once again, thank you very much, Mr. Mr. Zeke, for coming on to the show today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. But... If you like what you heard today, be sure to like, share, and subscribe. You can check us out on the web over at soundcloud.com slash markbwriting. 
You can also find the Neocobe Pizza podcast on various and sundry different locations where podcasts are hosted, inclusive of but not limited to iTunes, Google Music, and Stitcher. If you want to follow along on social media, you can follow me over on Twitter at twitter.com slash markbwriting or on Facebook at facebook.com slash markbwritinghome. And Zeke, do you have anything you wanted to plug? No, but thank you for asking. Oh, I appreciate it. Alrighty, join us next time when our topic will be why the third birthday is a piece of shit because no, I can't fucking let that go. On behalf of Zeke Ryden, my name is Mark B. Staying, stay safe out there, junkers.